Welcome once again to the second wave of evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. That's the second wave of quarantine evidence-based radio. Um, Goodness gracious knows that I uh, want to stop having to talk about COVID. Uh, Unfortunately, we're going to have to do it for just another moment. But before that, I wanted to talk about something different. So uh, news came out just yesterday. uh, And so in case you missed it, Dmitry Rogozin or uh, Rogozin is out as the head of Roscosmos. And so former Deputy Prime Minister Yuri Borisov will replace him. And what's interesting is that Borisov was also demoted into this position. So it's a bit of a weird thing going on there. But everything in Russia these days is uh, at best a little bit weird. And so we currently have no idea how this change will uh, actually affect the sort of stringed relationship between at least the uh, head of Roscosmos and other space agencies, including NASA and the ESA. But there is actually good news. So around the same time, it was announced that NASA and Roscosmos have come to a deal on a plan to exchange seats on four upcoming missions to the ISS. Flying integrated crews ensures there are appropriately trained crew members on board the station for essential maintenance and spacewalks, said NASA spokesman Josh Finch in a statement. It also protects against contingencies such as a problem with any crew spacecraft, serious crew medical issues, or an emergency aboard the station that requires a crew and the vehicle they are assigned to return to Earth sooner than planned. He further noted that the no-exchange-of-funds arrangement includes transportation to and from the International Space Station and comprehensive mission support, including all necessary training and preparation for launch, flight operations, landing, and crew rescue services. So hopefully this does indicate a change in tone, Though the announcement uh, was said to be timed in a way that was merely coincidental. Um, But we'll see. And uh, I think it's interesting, even though um, obviously this is a weird situation, I think it's very good that we are continuing to try and maintain some neutrality about the International Space Station because otherwise it's just... It's just going to be a nightmare to try and figure out what to do if we actually have to have a break with Roscosmos. Um, And as much as I don't want to be supporting anything Russia is doing at the moment, I do think that that partnership is important. Uh, And I do think that we should try and maintain as much uh, neutrality as humanly possible even if the Russians aren't so great at it. Um, So, yeah. Anyways, I think that obviously the ISS is a really important and good thing to have. Um, There's lots of ways in which the ISS does amazing and fascinating science that really can't, literally can't be done on Earth. Uh, And so I think that it's definitely a place that I don't, have a problem with as far as humans being in space. I think that's a pretty straightforward uh, place where they are able to do a lot of good work. Okay. (sighs) So now we have to talk about the newest wave of COVID that is crashing across the country. Um, I actually know of two cases right now myself And while that might not seem like a lot, I hadn't heard of any cases for a few weeks before that. 
And so this is the BA5 variant, but there is also yet another BA variant on the horizon elsewhere. Um, there have been three cases so far of what I believe is BA 7.5, but I'm not positive. I didn't write it down. I apologize. And so the government is actually considering doing a second booster for all adults in the face of this new wave. So right now, if you're above 50, you can get it. But um, right, but the uh, government is considering lowering that. Now, there isn't actually a lot of evidence right now that a second booster is indicated for anyone who is young and healthy. So there is that. But I think that people who want it should be able to get it, especially since so many people who are qualified for it don't want it. And actually, a new vaccine is being developed right now. Um, I've talked about that previously. And that should be rolled out in the fall. Now, it remains to be seen how well that new bivalent vaccine will work against the new strains that are currently circulating, but it's good to have these options. And so the long and the short of it is this. In the end, that COVID may not be all over the news anymore, but it's still all over the country and it is still infecting people at a large rate. The numbers we have are still over 100,000 active cases a day. And that's only what's being reported. We've moved to basically almost all home testing other than people who are in sort of company protocols the way that um, I am in order to go to work. I get tested once a week. Uh, and so even despite this fact that most people are testing at home and probably aren't alerting people, let's be, let's be honest, when they do come up positive – uh, the trend has moved upwards in the last month, as has death, as have deaths. So um, there is definitely a new worry. The current official count of deaths from the CDC since the pandemic began is 1,018,035 people. Over a million people have died in the U.S. alone. That is more people than in the entire city of Austin, Texas, according to the latest census. And Austin is ranked as the 11th largest city in the United States. <sighs> Sorry, this still gets to me every time I talk about it. So many people have died because of how deeply damaged our country is. The idea that we have politicized a life-saving vaccine is just mind-boggling. I cannot imagine what the history books will write about this era in American history. Of course, frankly, if Democrats keep catering to the Joe Mansions of this world, we probably won't have history books in the future because the human race will be living Mad Max style after global warming forces the collapse of society. You don't really have time to read when you're spending your days hunting squirrels for sustenance. Thank goodness I know a bit about how to shoot a bow and arrow. And this is definitely hyperbole, but it's also not. Um, I was just reading earlier today about Joe Manchin's absolutely garbage takes on uh, basically stringing Democrats along on the uh, climate initiatives in the build America, build America back better or whatever the heck the um, the bill that they're trying to get passed is called. And they just kept trying to make concessions for him because he's the swing vote. And good Lord, is that a depressing indictment of our political system. I truly feel now for the people in other times of strife and political insanity who couldn't believe what was happening around them. 
I think of the people who lived during the uh, presidency of Andrew Jackson, for instance, and other things like that. And I definitely feel for those people. I definitely feel like I understand now how it is when you just look around at your country and think, how, what happened? Who are these people? What is going on? I just don't get it. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm getting off track. Uh, let us leave this to historians again, hopefully, for tonight and switch gears to talking about uh, animals. And so, you know, animals aren't ideal beings necessarily, but they're a lot less willfully ignorant than most humans. And let's start in a very familiar and comfortable place. Let's talk about bird intelligence. Again, we're really not sure how exactly it is that animals with such tiny brains, comparatively, can handle such complex cognitive tasks as, for instance, tool use. Now, part of the answer is almost certainly that in birds, they pack more neurons per volume into their brains than any other species. Part of it may simply be that birds with a larger brain-to-body ratio have more going on for them. And some think it might just be basically the bigger the brain, the better you are. Now, the connection between larger brains and body size is mixed when looking overall. But a new paper published in Nature Ecology and Evolution suggests that, at least in birds, it's a bit of column A and a bit of column B. Both absolute and relative size matters. The first thing I had to establish was what they were considering intelligent. For this study, the researchers defined intelligence as the ability to display novel behaviors. They looked at studies on 111 wild bird species, excluding owls, which are harder to observe than other species. They looked for three major features. First, they looked at whether intelligence was tied to a specific region of the brain called the pallium, which, had been which has been compared to the human neocortex. This is the area of the brain that integrates sensory information, plans activities, and other higher order functions. Secondly, they looked at the difference in the number of neurons in brain regions to see how densely packed they were. The researchers were thus able to determine whether intelligence was tied to the entire bird or to the entire brain or to a specific region of the brain like the pallium. This also allowed them to look at the connection between body and brain size. Thirdly, they looked at the development of the brain in species that were deemed to have a greater level of intelligence. They found that some birds continue to have neuronal growth into adulthood. In general, they found that birds with larger brains were more intelligent and that the pallium indeed played a significant role in this measure, as well as the cerebellum to an extent. But they also found that if a bird had a larger brain compared to its body size, it was more likely to have intelligence. They further found that cerebellum size was tied to absolute brain size, but the pallium increased for both absolute brain size and brain size relative to body size. They found that in birds, most known for their intelligence, such as parrots and corvids, that neurons scaled more rapidly with body size than would be expected, and that, as with humans, they tended to have more brain development after birth, which allows for a denser distribution of neurons to develop into the pallium, develop in the pallium. Parrots especially tend to generate neurons for longer, and the neurons take longer to develop than in other species. This doesn't give us all the answers, however. 
While parrots are quite long-lived and thus most likely to have time to develop complex brain systems and frankly to need them in order to live long, corvids and jays live on average only around seven years comparatively, but they are still among the most cognitively complex birds. And there are lots of large birds and birds with long lifespans that do not show this kind of cognitive ability. So while we know more about how brain cognition develops in birds, there are still a lot of unanswered questions. And we'll need to study other species to see if the patterns found in birds hold up across the varied range of animals which do and do not display advanced cognition. Now, speaking of cool bird behavior, Australian magpie larks, Grelina cyanoleuca, use a form of ventriloquial illusion to make their territorial vocal duets seem more threatening. Co-author Rob McGrath from the Australian University explains that during their duets, magpie larks are monogamously pair bonded, they coordinate both loud calls and wing movements to indicate that they have laid claim to a particular territory. We found that the wing movement of magpie larks helps to enhance duets by revealing where the sound is coming from, he noted. Co-author Dr. Pavel Reck from the Adam Mikowicz University in Poland and a visiting fellow at ANU added that both male and female magpie larks sing regularly, but that mated pairs and that mated pairs will coordinate their songs into duets. These vocal duets are their main territorial signal, and even playback from speakers provokes a rapid response by neighbors, Dr. Rex said. Birds who have been bonded for longer periods are able to produce very precise duets. These well-coordinated calls are more threatening to other birds than the shabby, less rehearsed calls from newer pairings, Professor McGrath said. Vocal duets are also more effective if the callers are close together, as they are perceived as a threatening and united team. One issue, however, is that sound is often a bad indicator of directionality in non-controlled environments. So the birds use their wing displays to indicate specifically where the sound is coming from. The researchers used both speakers and robotic magpie larks, which is very cool, to test the response of males. The exciting thing with the experiment was the ability to have the models and speakers in different places, allowing us to test how wing motion affected sound perception, Dr. Rex said. When the two speakers were placed apart, we found it created a less effective signal than if the speakers were together. However, with the speakers still apart but the robotic birds together, the wing movement created a stronger response by the listeners, as if the colors were actually close together. The researchers conclude, in treatments in which we created spatial incongruence of the visual and vocal components of display, the wing display moderated the perception of angular separation. The wing display also has a role in coordination of the vocal display, acting a little like acting a little like a conductor's baton and provides unambiguous information on the number of signalers, which is otherwise not always perceptible from the acoustic signal alone, as individual birds can also produce pseudo-duets. Thus, they create an audio-visual illusion similar to TV. For example, when you're watching TV, you see someone opening and closing their mouth, and you hear the sound of their voice from a nearby speaker. Your brain then constructs an illusion where the sound is coming from that person's mouth, Professor McGrath said. We think that magpie larks moving their wings up and down create a similar illusion and acts as a way of enhancing the duet. 
In the real world, background noise and echoes can make it difficult to tell where calls come from. So the wing-waving display helps confirm when birds are together. The authors also conclude that more research should focus on multimodal displays rather than separating out each modality or action into separate components of communication. And while we're on the subject of birds, a new study has dropped that suggests that pretty much everyone has been getting the mechanism of how woodpeckers are able to peck so forcefully without hurting their brains wrong. Previous to this work, most people believed that the woodpeckers' heads must act like shock-absorbing helmets. The new study, published in the journal Current Biology, suggests that, rather than helmets, their heads act like stiff hammers. By analyzing high-speed video of three species of woodpecker, we found that woodpeckers do not absorb the shock of the impact with the tree, says Sam Van Wassenberg of the Université Antwerpen in Belgium. The team filmed three species of woodpeckers using high-speed film in order to study the impact decelerations during pecking. They then used this data to build biomechanical models which led them to the discovery that shock absorbance would actually be disadvantageous to the birds. It turns out that while the same amount of force would cause a human or ape to get a concussion, the amount of force exerted is not enough to do damage to the woodpecker's smaller brain. They found that the force of pecking a tree trunk is actually well below the threshold for concussion without the need for protective architecture in the skull. The absence of shock absorption does not mean their brains are in danger during the seemingly violent impacts, said Van Wassenberg. Even the strongest shocks from the over 100 pecks that were analyzed should still be safe for the woodpecker's brains at our calculation as our calculation showed, brain loadings that are lower than that of humans suffering a concussion. The finding thoroughly debunks the assumed wisdom of the shock-absorbing head. And it's actually really interesting to watch the film of the pecs, as you can see the shockwave ripple through their feathers and backwards from their head and neck. It's really interesting to watch. Um, and you can tell that the force is going right along through. Van Wassenberg suggests this may be why there aren't woodpeckers with larger heads and neck muscles. The ability to deliver a more powerful peck would most likely be enough to cause damage to their brain. And this also has implications for material science. Engineers had previously used the anatomy of woodpeckers' skulls as a biomimicry inspiration for shock-absorbing material and helmets. His team has also found that woodpeckers often get their beaks stuck, but they free them by quickly alternating movements of the upper and lower halves of their beaks. Their next study will look at how beak shape is adapted for pecking. Okay, we're going to move underwater after this, um, but first we are going to take a break for some show, mos and show promos and <laughs> some PSAs, and we'll be back in a few minutes. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres. 
and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical courses off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly and at other times perhaps do not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. You are once again listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Okay, so as promised, we are now going to dive beneath the ocean, and we are going to first talk about pistol shrimp. And we're going to discuss how pistol shrimp do protect their brains using a tiny clear helmet that prevents significant neural damage by dampening shockwaves from its own attacks. <laughs> I thought this is a really great symmetry um, that we found out that woodpeckers don't do this, but now we found out that uh, pistol shrimp do do it. So it's very exciting. So a new paper in the journal Current Biology suggests that the snapping shrimp or pistol shrimp does use a dampening mechanism to prevent damage to their eyes and brain. Now, pistol shrimps are one of the loudest creatures in the ocean. Uh, they have an outsized claw that snaps with extreme force and causes a shockwave that can stun or kill small fish that the shrimp prey upon. And uh, as we are talking about things like global warming, apparently because they are cold-blooded and when the oceans warm up, they're going to be more active, they're going to end up being even more loud. And in fact, they're so loud sometimes that they mess up sonar. So they're crazy little critters. We propose that when a shock wave strikes an orbital hood, the rapid changes in pressure cause the water underneath it to be expelled through the anterior opening away from the head of the shrimp, the authors wrote. Through the expulsion of water, some of the kinetic energy of the shock wave may be redirected and released. And so Alexandra Kingston of the University of Tulsa in Oklahoma and her co-authors on this latest paper were curious about how pistol shrimp could survive the powerful shock waves produced by their claws. 
which can cause both short and long-term damage to neural tissue in particular. They created an experiment where several chimps had their orbital hoods removed and then were exposed to shocks. Those with their hoods removed showed signs of disorientation and even fell over after the snaps, while control shrimp were fine. The affected shrimp took up to seven times longer to return to their burrows compared to the other groups, while displaying, displaying signs of difficulty controlling their limbs. We propose that when a shock wave strikes an orbital hood, the rapid changes in pressure cause the water underneath it to be expelled through the interior opening away from the head of the shrimp, the authors wrote. Through the expulsion of water, some of the kinetic energy of the shock wave may be redirected and released. Sorry, I think I read that twice. <laughs> now, this seems to be the first instance of such a type of biological armor. And, as noted, it comes just in time for material science to have a new biological example in order to create new shock absorbent materials and helmets. It's really hard to stop these pressure waves, Kingston told New Scientist. Even things like traditional Kevlar armor don't stop these shock waves. They can travel through that material. My group is definitely hoping to work with material scientists and engineers, and perhaps the military in the future, to try to engineer that something that will be more effective than just protection against secondary physical blast injuries. So that is pretty exciting. Okay, now let's move on to fish and their connection to math. Um, and as an aside, before we start talking about fish, if you're looking to take a break from the unrelenting horror that is the current political scene and our uh, moment in time, uh, one of the things I can suggest is seeking out one of the many live cam views of various underwater spots that are available on the internet. Um, I was just watching today some of these uh, live feeds with beautiful, colorful fish swimming around, and it was very soothing. Uh, very, very soothing. Anywho, you might think that math is a human thing, but all sorts of animals need to be able to distinguish basic, comment, com basic concepts such as few and many. Even bumblebees have been shown to be able to do basic math. But just how the brain, be it insect, animal, or human, is able to sense quantities and process numbers isn't well understood. Cue the absolute workhorse of laboratory work, especially in neuroscience, the humble zebrafish. An international team reviewed more than 200 papers to find that fish use the same part of their brains as mammals and birds to perceive quantities. The paper is published in the journal Frontiers in Neuroanatomy. Fish are on par with other animals in possessing a sense of quantity, said corresponding author Professor Giorgio Valigertara of the University of Trento in Italy. There are species, most notably the zebrafish, that are ideal models for studying the molecular and genetic bases of the sense of quantity. This could have important implications for neurodevelopmental diseases affecting number cognition, such as developmental dyscalculia, which impairs math skills in up to 6% of children. Estimating quantities is a pretty essential part of the life of most animals, including fish. Knowing the quantity of food or other fish can be very important. For instance, especially if those other fish are predators. Many teams have tried to use behavioral studies to understand how fish gauge quantities. But Veligatoria's team looked more closely at the cellular and genetic level. 
Another open issue is whether numerical quantities are really computed as an abstract property or whether animals always think about numbers on the basis of other cues from their surroundings, such as surface area, contour length, or density, said Velaturiga. However, experiments are described in this review that show that pure numerousness is indeed used by fish. And some studies have discovered clues to the specific neurons that form the circuits that process quantity, including those that code for discrete quantities. Specifically, they found that the retina and the optic tectum have been documented for the estimation of continuous quantities in the larval and adult zebrafish brain, and the contributions of the thalamus and the dorsal central pallium for discrete magnitude estimation in the adult zebrafish brain. And genetic research shows that these areas are similar across species. A big ongoing question is whether the mechanisms for quantity cognition in the different parts of the animal kingdom evolved from a common ancestor or separately as a result of convergent evolution under similar selective pressures, added Velertigera. Sorry. <laughs> I'm having trouble with that name. Okay, we are going to stay in the water and we are going to move on to talk about a much smaller animal, uh, copepods. So copepods are tiny crustaceans that are one of the essential components of the aquatic food web. So they're basically, if you think about krill, they're kind of the same thing as krill. Krill are usually tiny shrimp, um, but they're that kind of animal where you have um, the sort of uh, huge amounts of them that feed other fish. And uh, so, yeah, they're they're one of those sort of basic, uh, they're sort of one of the bases of the food chain in the... Um, ocean web. And so they're kind of important. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so with the pressures on aquatic ecosystem, ecosystems by climate change, it's important to study how these tiny critters will respond to, for instance, decreased salinity and other pressures of climate change as the ice caps continue to melt. Now, there's actually a bit of good news here. Researchers found that a group of copepods from the Baltic Sea were able to evolve and adapt to cope with reduced salinity. The researchers studied Eurytimora affinis, which is found around the world and is a food source for juvenile fish like salmon, herring, and anchovy. This is a dominant coastal species serving as very abundant and highly nutritious fish food, said Carol Yunmi Lee, professor in the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Department of Integrative Biology and a senior author of a new study on the copepod published in the journal Nature Communications. But they're vulnerable to climate change, obviously, and that includes a reduction in salinity. These copepods are a saltwater species that now needs to adapt to much fresher water in their environment, she added. Now, melting ice isn't just a worry because of the rise in the oceans claiming land, much of which is inhabited by humans and species that only live on coastal borders, but it's also about salt. Salinity is a very strong environmental pressure in aquatic habitats, said David Stern, lead author of the study and a former postdoctoral researcher in Lee's lab, now working at the National Biodefense Analysis and Countermeasures Center. Lee Stern and their research team studied a population of Eurytimora affinis in their lab. Initially, the entire population was kept in water with salinity equivalent to the part of the Baltic Sea from where they had been sampled. After living and reproducing for several generations, the copepods were divided into 14 groups of a few thousand each. Four control groups maintained their salinity 
while the other 10 were exposed to lower salinity rates to mirror what might happen with climate change. Each had their water salinity dropped at the point of each new generation, uh, which is about three weeks for this particular kind of copepod. And they did that for 10 generations. The researchers conducted genomic testing on the animals at the beginning of the experiment, and then after the sixth and tenth generations, they found a large selection pressure across the stressed populations at part of the genome believed to be important for regulating ions such as sodium transport transporters. In salt water, there are a lot of ions, like sodium, that are essential for survival, but when you get to fresh water, these irons are precious, says Lee. So the copepods need to suck them up from the environment and hang onto them. And the ability to do that relies on these ion transporters that we found undergoing natural selection. Now, uh, if you don't remember, ion, um, sodium ions are basically the way that a lot of cells are able to function. And so um, it's the reason that basically all animals need salt. And so you either need to get it from the water if you're in the water or you need to ingest it in some other way in order to be able to have that bioavailable in order for your body to be able to basically function. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's very, very important to be able to get those sodium ions. Now, interestingly, it turns out that the, the genetic combinations that were favored were shared among all of the copepods and that the same alleles are found in the copepods that live in regions of the Baltic that actually have less salinity. With the number of genes we have encoded the traits in our copepods, there's no way we would see the amount of parallelism we did unless something was driving it, says Stearns. Now, not only is this a ray of hope that these important critters will have some level of resistance to climate change, it's also new evidence for a genetic mechanism called positive epistasis. This is a mechanism different from additive evolution, which suggests that all gene variations are equal. Epistasis suggests that the positive effect of a variant of a gene is amplified when working in combination with other key genes. And so basically, in other words, the sum is greater than the whole in these cases. This copepod gives us an idea of what it takes, an idea of what the conditions are needed that enable a population to evolve rapidly in response to climate change, says Lee. It also shows how important evolution is for understanding our changing planet and how or even whether population and ecosystems will survive, which is a big deal right now because, yeah, we are not doing great. And so we really need to be able to figure some of this out. Uh, it's not great. I'm not going to lie. Uh, we're not doing so hot when it comes to getting any kind of action going. Um, you know, I was railing earlier about uh, Manchin, Joe Manchin, and it's just really a symptom of the fact that Americans just are not willing to actually admit that climate change is something that needs to be dealt with and that the way it needs to be dealt with is not by individual people recycling or reducing their amounts of uh, energy they use, but by holding companies, huge multinational companies accountable for holding fossil fuel companies accountable for what they are doing and how they continue to just delay and delay and delay and to absolutely try to prevent any kind of meaningful action on climate change. And it's 
extremely frustrating. Um, since we have a few minutes left, um, I'm sorry about the technical difficulties in this uh, episode. I hope that it's not that bad. Um, so the other thing that is sort of still circulating in the news is monkeypox. So uh, monkeypox is still very much a real thing. It is still very bad. Uh, right now, there are more than 1,400 cases in the United States alone. Um, and so as of July 14th, there were 1,470 cases, and that is a nearly 40% jump from the day before, in fact. And so cases have now been found in over 40 states, as well as Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico. Uh, South Dakota reported its first case just yesterday. Um, sorry, that would be Wednesday. And uh, so it's mostly concentrated in New York, California, and Illinois, mostly because of Chicago, I would expect. And so um, the problem is, is that it's not particularly deadly. Um, I don't think there have been any deaths in uh, Europe or the US yet, but it does kill people in Africa. And so if it was to develop into a strain more like the one that uh, is active in Africa, in Africa, there have been only over 70 deaths this year. Um, but this strain, again, does seem to be less uh, deadly, but it's still pretty awful. And one of the big issues is that we are trying desperately not to let it become endemic because we do not need another thing that we need to deal with right now. And of course, one of the big reasons that people suspect it's becoming uh, such a problem is because we have stopped vaccinating for smallpox. And because we had stopped uh, vaccinating for smallpox, we didn't have a lot of vaccine on hand. And so there's a lot more people who want a vaccine than can get one right now. Uh, the website in New York apparently has crashed at least twice. Um, and so the other big issue is that if it becomes big enough and there's a large enough population, there is a chance for it to spill over into animal populations. And that is going to be another big issue. We do not want it to spill over into animals in the US or in Europe, because that, again, makes it much more likely that it is going to become a problem that we have to continually deal with. And so hopefully uh, more vaccines will be created soon and people will be able to get them. Um, it is still primarily circulating among men who have sex with men, uh, but there have been some women who have been infected because it's pretty easy to get if you have contact with someone who has an active case of it. And as we talked about before, it's not necessarily that the person is going to have sores all over them. Some of the cases have sores in just a few places. And if you don't notice it and you have contact with that person, or if you have contact with uh, bedclothes or something like that, that have uh, come in contact with that person, then you can potentially have an issue. So yeah, um, this has developed into a actual, into a third and new lineage. And uh, it's not sure if it's more transmissible than before. It might just again be the fact that we have all of this waning um, vaccination and waning immunity to smallpox, which basically if you had uh, the vaccine for smallpox, then all of these other poxes, they all are kind of similar. And so they all basically, if you have protection for one, you have protection for the others. That's how they actually uh, created this first smallpox viruses is that they would infect people with cowpox. Um, that's the famous story is that they would give people cowpox. Um, they would take 
pus from cowpox uh, sores and um, put it into people's bloodstreams and then they would get a mild infection with that and that would protect them against smallpox. And so, um, yeah, that is definitely something that is a problem. Um, it's one of those other things that keeps me up at night, the whole like bioterrorism potentiality of things like smallpox. And um, I was actually just reading a story the other day, um, actually earlier this morning, about how uh, there's new evidence to suggest people have been looking at paintings and manuscripts and they actually believe that um, you can see people had syphilis before we uh, thought that they did. And so we had once thought that syphilis was brought over from uh, the Americas and um, it turns out that it was probably already circulating in Europe. But on the other hand, the way that uh, Europeans brought things like smallpox and measles basically absolutely destroyed Native American uh, communities and cultures because they did not have any immunity and they were completely naive to it. Their systems were completely naive to it. And there was, you know, obviously no vaccination and things like that. And we have the ability to do vaccinations and that sort of thing these days. But it still is one of those things that potentially keeps me up at night. Um, so, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> that's a great way to end tonight. Um I will uh, be back next week, hopefully uh, slightly less uh, discombobulated. Um, have a great evening and good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.